Dr. Ann Sismar is an associate professor in the Department of Government. She first started teaching at EKU in 2011. She teaches a variety of courses, including Introduction to American Government, the American Presidency, the U.S. Congress, Campaigns and Elections, and Political Science Research Methods, among others. Recently, Dr. Sismar also assumed the role of Program Coordinator for EKU's Master of Public Administration program. Dr. Sismar has been interviewed by a number of media outlets for her expertise on U.S. elections. Dr. Sismar, welcome, and thank you for your time this afternoon. Uh, first, thank you for having me. Okay, thank you. Well, what first question I'd like to ask you is what drew you into the study of political science as a profession? I mean, at what point did you end up, end up deciding, hey, this is where my passion lies? Was there a eureka moment or did it just evolve over time? If I think about it now in the path that I took, it probably was predestined given how interested in politics my family has always been. So my mom served on city council in my local neighborhood community where I grew up. My dad was a middle school social studies and history teacher. So I come by it honestly in my interest of politics. My family has always been very interested in politics. When I was an undergrad, I started out as an English major and then I took introduction to American government and I just loved the course. I wanted to learn more about it. So I added that on as my second major. And then I thought, like many political science majors along the way, that I wanted to go to law school. I took the LSAT, I applied, I was accepted, I thought I was going. And then I took a class on public opinion in American elections, and I just couldn't get enough of learning about it. And I wanted to know more, so I decided to go on for my master's degree and then on to my PhD. So I had sort of a eureka movement along the way, but I have always been interested in politics. Oh, very good, very good, thank you. Well, of course, as you know, we're in a presidential election year, and one of the hot topics is the casting of votes, either by mail or in person. Now, would you please share with our audience why this is such a controversial issue, and it seems to have divided people mainly along party lines? So that's actually not surprising given what's been going on in politics recently. In short, as political scientists would tell you, whenever anything gets picked up by political elites, so those are members of the government, president, members of Congress, governors, uh, members of state legislators, uh, state legislatures, et cetera, then those will start sending cues to co-partisans, people who are Democrats or Republicans, about a particular issue and what the sort of Democratic or Republican stance on that issue would be. And so we've heard a lot of discussion about this on behalf of political elites in the country over the last few months, particularly as we're considering what to do for voting given COVID-19 and all of the challenges that come with social distancing and trying to keep people separate not creating big group environments, et cetera, uh, for the spread of COVID-19. So this has become hotly discussed in politics amongst political elites. And so those messages have been filtering down to voters and people tend to follow their party line. So members of the Republican party are hearing cues, members of the Democratic party are hearing cues. And so they're going to follow the political leaders that they have from their party. Uh, and so that's sort of the practical reason why it's fallen down on party lines. When you also think about what politics does, politics is the study of power. It helps us to understand who gets to exercise power in what ways over whom, who's going to bear costs or benefits in society, 
And so as a result of that, there's a lot at stake. And that's one of the other reasons why I think it's so important to study political science, because there's so much at stake in election outcomes and in who's leading, who's ruling. And as a result of that, because there's so much at stake, we also see that this will be a very hot button topic because who controls politics, who controls government is essentially an outcome of how the election might be run or who's voting in particular elections. And so that's why you see this as such a flashpoint. Well, kind of following up on that question, we saw in our last presidential election and our most recent gubernatorial election that there were outcries of voter fraud. Dr. Sismar, would you please speak to this issue? How does voter fraud occur? It, and is it as widespread as some would like us to believe? And, and does Kentucky have safeguards in place to prevent it from actually occurring? So we do have safeguards. I'll start with the end piece first. We do have safeguards in Kentucky to protect us against voter fraud. In particular, if we're thinking about absentee or mail-in ballots, which has been the most commonly cited part of voter fraud recently uh, with what's going on with the pandemic and discussion about how we might vote in the fall. We see that there's incredibly low rates of voter fraud for absentee ballots. In Kentucky, of course, you have to request your ballot through a process in the first place where you give information about yourself, like your birth date, your full name, your address. Uh, the ball ballot comes to your address that's listed on your voter registration file. And so you know, you have to get the ballot out of that mailbox on the time when it's delivered. You also fill out your ballot and then you have to sign the inner envelope and also the outer envelope and then mail it back. So it, it has not been an area in which we've seen a lot of voter fraud. And in fact, voter fraud in the United States across the board tends to be fairly rare especially large schemes in which you would have someone fabricating hundreds or thousands of ballots. Historically in Kentucky, we have had a few issues with voter fraud, but those are really for local level, county level elections. And those seem to take the form of more like vote buying. So people trying to influence those who go to the polls to vote by providing them with some financial incentives in order to get them to change their vote um, to the candidate that, that we're trying to vote by for, right? So those are not really faking people going to the polls or sort of making up fake ballots or something like that, but really just trying to, to vote by from people who are already going to the polls, which is of course still uh, terrible. In the United States, we have free and fair elections and we have to for the continuance of our democracy. And so as a result of that, any voter fraud is very important to investigate, but we haven't seen widespread voter fraud in the United States. And so there are a lot of protections, both within the state of Kentucky and also at the national level to help protect against voter fraud. Additionally, when you think about how elections are run in America, it becomes difficult for somebody to have a widespread nationwide type of, of voter fraud scheme that would be undetected, particularly because each of the 50 states run their elections and actually oversee the elections process independently. And so it's not as though there's one clearinghouse for elections at the federal level where the federal government could, could be manipulated in one place. Kentucky Board of Elections does its elections. Ohio Board of Elections oversees the ballots in the election process on and on for all of the 50 states separately. Okay, very good. Now, one thing that I hear a lot about in the news and it seems to come up more and more is this idea of foreign countries hacking into the U.S. cyber world to try and influence election outcomes. Now, what exactly are these hackers doing 
to try and exert their influence? Is it social media posts or is it breaking into voter registration systems? What are they doing when we hear about the, these hacking inc incidences? So primarily what we're, we've been experiencing in uh, potential for international influence into American elections, at least in 2016, seems to be a lot of these bot accounts. And so essentially they would come up with a bunch of fake accounts for social media and then put out information that is intentionally fake or is intentionally divisive or misleading and have those posts heavily circulating around on social media to help sort of foment discontent and anger and frustration within the American populace along the way. And so that is, of course, a very real threat. Any misinformation is a, is a threat to democracy, frankly. We need to make sure that people are informed voters to the extent possible and that we have free and fair elections in order to continue forward with, with being a democratic nation. And so that's primarily where we've seen international influence. I've heard some talk in this, this coming election cycle, would a foreign country try to put out a whole bunch of fake ballots or something, kind of stuff the ballot box. We haven't seen that type of, of intervention occur before. Okay. Um, just as an aside, do you think that we in the United States, that there are hackers who are trying to influence foreign elections? Not that I've been aware of. And so I think the United States has historically, from an international policy perspective, perhaps had particular outcomes they would view as favorable in an election, um, perhaps done some things in terms of government policy related to international affairs. But in terms of just average voters um, around actually trying to hack elections or influence elections, not that I have, have seen credible evidence of. Okay, very good. That's good to know. Um, switching gears a little bit, in the last 20 years or so, I've noticed there's been a push by some people to eliminate the Electoral College and have elections determined solely by popular vote. So what are your thoughts about this, especially in light of what we've been talking about in terms of potential voter fraud? Does the Electoral College provide a corrective, or is it a hindrance to the democratic voting process? So when we talk about the Electoral College, it's important to know where it comes from in the first place. So it is specified in the United States Constitution, and abolishing it would require a constitutional amendment. And so that process is intentionally long and challenging to overcome. And so it's unlikely that we will actually see the Electoral College abolished through constitutional amendment. The Electoral College itself, though, is not, let's say, considered the single best invention for mankind at the time it was created. But what happens during the Constitutional Convention is the very first draft of the Constitution doesn't really include a selection mechanism for the president. And so the convention delegates are tasked with trying to come up with a way to choose a president given that they didn't like the two most obvious alternatives they could think of. So one would be direct popular vote given the year, the late 1700s when this is occurring, it's not easy for people to go and cast ballots. Um, and so that could be a hindrance. 
Additionally, there was some concern that people would only vote for their favorite son. So essentially, you wouldn't have any presidential candidates who received widespread popular support across the nation. Instead, you would only have the local hero be the one supported in each state. And as a result of that, you wouldn't really have anyone with widespread support potentially um, serving as the president. So that was a problem. Um, just the practicality of voting a mass election at the time was, was considered difficult. The second alternative that seemed fairly obvious, of course, would be having Congress, the legislature, choose who the president would be. But that violates our standard of separation of powers. So we have a governmental system in which the president serves as the executive and Congress serves as the legislative branch. Presidents and Congress are intentionally selected separately from one another. And so you don't have a situation where the president really owes his job to the legislative branch, to Congress. And so they considered both of those alternatives and didn't really like either one. So what they come up with at sort of the 11th hour is this thing called the Electoral College, in which you would have uh, states choose their electors and then the electors would select president among the presidential candidates for who would become president. In the early days, there maybe was some way for electors to actually come together and sort of discuss in this learned wise men type of model you might think of and, and choose who the president would be. In modern times, of course, uh, most states use the popular vote winner by state to be the determinant of how the electors will vote. So essentially you have, uh, say in Kentucky, a slate of electors who will be pledged to vote for President Trump uh, if he he's going forward and he wins the general election. And then you would have a slate of electors who would be selected to vote for Biden, who are Democrats, who would also be selected for the state of Kentucky. And then however Kentucky popular vote goes, then that slate of electors would be sent to actually cast their electoral college ballots. So it's really a pro forma election today. It's not really so much this idea of you have a learned group of, of scholars of wise people who would be casting ballots by making just decisions about who they thought the best candidate would be. So it doesn't really provide that type of check that we might think of. And in fact, many states now, I think it's about 38 states actually attempt to require electors to vote for the candidate for whom they were pledged in the first place. When an elector votes against that pledged candidate, it's called a faithless elector. And most states now actually try to bind the electors to voting for the actual candidate for whom they said that they would vote when they were, were chosen as an elector. I'll note that uh, we did have the most uh, uh, faithless electors ever in the 2016 election, although none of them were against President Trump. They were all voters who were supposed to vote for Hillary Clinton and decided to vote for sort of random random other candidates that weren't Clinton in, in the 2016 election. So it had no practical implications for, the, for who won the election, right? Of course, President Trump had already won the Electoral College. Um, and so it's not necessarily the check that we might think that it is. Does that answer your question? Yeah, it does. But it brings up another question. Does, it leaves one with the feeling that our votes don't count for some reason. You know, here we are in a nation full of, what, 400 million people, something like that. And I go to the polls and I vote. But ultimately, it's the number of electoral college votes that get attributed to one candidate or the other that makes that determination. Because it seems like the news media uh, follows the electoral college count more than it follows the popular vote count. So, I mean, is there a downside to this? Does it, it makes me feel a little helpless as far as um, 
as far as my vote counting. So it can be incredibly frustrating for voters, particularly if you, let's say you were a red voter in a blue state or a blue voter in a red state, because realistically for the presidential election, your vote is not going to sway you know, a state which is clearly against your partisanship. And so the electoral college votes in your state will definitely go to the opposing candidate. So that's definitely a downside, particularly as we get on to the year 2020 and people are pushing for more access to government, for government to be more responsive, the electoral college perhaps is a hindrance to that. And so there are some talks that perhaps it's undemocratic, it's really thwarting the public will to still have the electoral college in place. Uh, one, I don't know, benefit, let's say, of the Electoral College is if we have widespread issues with voter returns, so some states don't have enough polling locations that are open, or they have problems counting ballots and whatnot, we don't actually need to be certain every single ballot and every single vote that was cast, which is bad to your point, right? If you're that voter, you're very sad about your ballot not being counted. Um, on the other side, though, it makes it manageable as well to run the election. So we only need to be certain how a majority of votes came out in Kentucky in order to cast those electoral college votes over to the winning candidate. We don't actually need to be sure how every single ballot came out. In an ideal world, we would be able to be sure how every single ballot came out, but voter suppression and various laws designed to help demobilize voters, of course, are an important uh, problem. And so it makes that all the worse, let's say. Um, and so I think, you know, there are people who argue on both sides. My biggest concern about the Electoral College and whether it maybe should, should be eliminated becomes a situation of, does it always reward the same party? And so if the Electoral College and popular vote split could break for either party, so Democrats could win the popular vote, the Republicans win the Electoral College, or Republicans could win the uh, electoral, uh, the popular vote, but Democrats could somehow win the electoral college. It could split either way, just giving the election forecast, then it's probably less of a concern. If it's going to systematically, however, always come out in the situation where one party is winning the popular vote and the other party is winning the electoral college and therefore winning the election, then that becomes a bigger concern for democracy, for public unrest, for public faith in elections, which are all really critical underpinnings of our political system. Okay. You know, a few years ago in the um, Bush-Gore campaigns, uh, as you remember, the, the whole thing was the, uh, was Florida and the hanging chads from the yes. vote forms. Why was all that such a big deal if what we're looking for was the majority? Were, were they trying to determine the majority of votes in that particular state at that time? They were, and so we literally came down to a few thousand votes in a few particular counties of Florida to determine who would be the winner of the presidential election because neither state, neither candidate in the, at that time, Bush or Gore, neither one of them could win the electoral college necessary votes in order to be certified as president without the electoral college votes of Florida. And so it came down to those couple of counties, couple thousand votes in, those state, in that state to determine who would actually be the president of the United States. And if you remember back to 2000, I know some, some folks will not remember that amongst our college student population now, but you saw the videos in which they were going through and they're scrutinizing each one of the ballots to try to determine, does it look like this person had actually tried to punch through their ballot? And then the chad was hanging, which means that little perforated circle on, that's supposed to pop through was kind of like left partially attached or not. And so you saw video of just people 
looking and scrutinizing the ballots, trying to determine which ballots were intended to be votes and which ones weren't, et cetera. Um, of course, what happens in that case is the Supreme Court gets involved and says that the Constitution says the election has to be certified by a particular date in the Constitution. And so the recount had to end. They couldn't actually go through with recounting all the ballots because there wasn't time, which is one of the concerns about the mail-in votes this time around is that even in the primary elections where we had a higher number of mail-in ballots across several states, it took a long time to count some of those ballots. And that was in a primary election where turnout is much, much lower than in the general election. So the practicality of the mail-in ballots may become problematic if states haven't prepared themselves for it in advance because they may not have time to actually open and count all of those ballots by the, the necessary deadline to certify their results. Okay, very good. Thank you, that, that helps explain a lot that uh, I've been wondering about, so thank you. Um, given the turmoil of 2020 with the worldwide pandemic, the, the social unrest here in the United States, the fluctuating economy, um, our interactions with uh, other world powers such as China, what do you see as being the hot button topic for this year's presidential election and why? It's really interesting because we are in an unprecedented election, one like I have never seen in my lifetime and one like has never occurred. And so it's really hard right now to make predictions about what the electorate is thinking and what's going to happen. And so I feel very unconfident that I, as, in a way that I wouldn't normally, is sort of about what voters are thinking and what might actually happen in this election outcome because it is so unprecedented. I would say that COVID is really at the top of people's minds. As we've mentioned though, certain things have become very partisan. So the mask requirements, for example, the types of treatments that might be offered to people, whether things should be closed or open, these have all become highly politicized events. And so the COVID piece itself, I think has largely filtered down now through the parties already. So that people who are likely to be Biden voters know what they think about masks and treatments and open and closed closing of things. And people who are likely to be Trump voters know what they think about those issues as well. And so COVID in some ways I think has already filtered itself through in terms of the parties. More interesting though is actually the economic piece of this. So the economic collapse that we've been experiencing is largely due to the pandemic. Prior to that, the economy was actually very strong by a number of markers, unemployment, the stock market, et cetera. And so it's weird because normally a president is always punished for a bad economy. And it would be unthinkable that a president overseeing this type of economic devastation could possibly be considered for reelection. The issue is it's not due to anything about the economy itself. It was precipitated, it was set off in motion by the pandemic. And so I'm not sure how that will play to voters. Normally we would think of this type of unemployment and these types of job losses, the type of uh, rising grocery prices and whatnot as being really bad for the incumbent president. But I'm not sure how that plays out given that so much of it seems to have started with the pandemic. And so do people sort of blame President Trump or not? It's all gonna be about blame, blame attribution. Do they think that this is something that was out of his control or do they think that President Trump was to blame for um, the continuation of the pandemic or how things have, have occurred? And so blame attribution will be a key, key piece of this. And I just can't guess in this case because again, it wasn't an economy 
failure itself, it was precipitated by the pandemic. The other thing you mentioned is really interesting is social unrest, particularly related to Black Lives Matter and the protest movements. President Trump, as you would expect in recent weeks, I think has really been trying to play up sort of the law and order component of it to try and woo back core voters uh, to his, his candidacy. And so you would think about voters, maybe white um, suburban voters, perhaps being motivated to vote for him despite COVID-19 or despite the uh, despite the economic concerns because of the idea of social unrest and, and sort of having a strong law and order sort of militaristic or police sort of presence as being a motivating factor for those voters. I don't know how that plays out though, again, given COVID and given the economic collapse. So we have multiple things, multiple big issues going on simultaneously. I think you also may see some younger voters, perhaps minority voters being heavily mobilized by what's been going on this summer with the social unrest. And so wanting to see action, wanting to see government responsive, wanting to see things actually change. And as a result of that, perhaps we have some younger voters who often go to the polls at much lower rates than older voters. We know that to be true. And perhaps you have some additional voters being really mobilized to go out to the elections this time. I want to pursue the uh, social unrest here just for a minute. And you bring up such good points. Uh, as we've seen with the deaths of George Floyd and Breonna Taylor, um, much, much happened in, in our culture and in our society. Do you think the protests will be a force for meaningful change? Or do you think our politicians and maybe even our society at large will, will really have a short memory of this? And, and how do you see these protests um, evolving? I mean, does it have a life past the November elections? Or do you think it'll, it'll continue afterwards? I'd really like to think it will be a force for change. And I really like, would like to think that it will continue on beyond the November elections. My hope is that the protest movements will be able to channel into the elections in terms of pressuring candidates, pressuring politicians that are already in office uh, to, to make the right choices in terms of extending rights, liberties, protections for everybody. And then additionally, I'm hoping that it will also generate some newer faces in politics, folks who come from the protest movement and perhaps go on to run for office themselves. So both in the protest movement and then go on to actually serve in government, serve in different leadership roles or positions as well as we go forward. When you think about John Lewis who just passed away, for example, he started out as a protester during the civil rights movement and he yeah. had a storied career in government serving and helping people all around the nation. So I'd like to think that the protests will both have an impact on elections in 2020 and what government officials focus on, what they think is important, what types of, of policies they're working to promote. Additionally, also seeing those protesters come in to become habitual voters or even running for office themselves for different positions going forward in the coming years. Okay, very good. I, I hope things will change as well or bring about change. I, I want to shift gears one more time to uh, something that I think is near and dear to your heart, and that's the EKU Online Political Science and MPA programs. Um, what can a prospective student expect when he or she enters either program or if you want to speak to one in particular? I mean, what, what does one do with a degree after graduation? 
Great. So I'll talk about both of them um, for a few moments, but I would obviously encourage anyone who's interested in the program can directly reach out to me, can directly reach out to our department or to eCampus for the online programs as well. So folks who come into political science are often interested in, in going to law school. Additionally, we have a number of our former students who work in business, who work for state or local government, who work in federal government, who work for nonprofit organizations that would serve like Wounded Warrior Project or working at um, different organizations that would help in Appalachia, et cetera. Um, we also have a number of people who are going on to graduate programs, including the Master of Public Administration degree. The Master of Public Administration degree at EKU is one that is focused heavily on community development, state and local government, also federal government positions. And we've added now a new nonprofit track and concentration as well. And so again, training the leaders of tomorrow who want to work in nonprofit organizations and really serving the communities that they come from and serving the world as a whole. And so these are, are wonderful programs and people can go into any number of different areas with their degrees. But again, the traditional tracks are folks who are interested in working perhaps law school, state and local governments, federal government, nonprofit organizations, um, and those types of, of, of areas. Okay, very good. Dr. And I'll also note we have fabulous faculty, so students can also <laughs> expect a wonderful experience with our faculty and a great experience in their classes. You know, we have our Quality Matters reviewed programs for the fully online MPA program and also the fully online eCampus undergraduate political science degree. And of course, we also have the traditional face-to-face -face, uh, undergraduate political science degree as well. And we'd love to see all of the students coming and, and joining us. So we, we have a great program. You do have an excellent program and you do have some outstanding faculty uh, of which you are one of them. And, and I just appreciate your time so much. Uh, do you have any last words? I, I've run out of, I could sit here actually and talk to you for hours because this, this is all fascinating to me. But is there any last things you wanna say either about the election or about um, uh, anything we've talked about today? I could also go on and on as my students know about elections and presidents and Congress and all of those topics. And I hope I'll get a chance to do so with some of the viewers who come and take our classes. But the last thing I would want to say to you all is go and vote. I'm not telling you who to vote for, I'm just telling you to do it. Particularly younger voters have been staying away from the polls, they have not been going and voting, and it is so critical to have your voice heard and your voice counted, because realistically, politicians listen to people who they know are going to vote in elections. They know in those cases they can't afford to vote against those people, and so I just encourage everyone to go out and exercise your right to vote come the November election. A very wise word to, to end this program today. Thank you, Dr. Sismar. I appreciate your Thank time you. very much. Absolutely. Thank you.